start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast shield. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I am your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us is a web cartoonist and newly minted science fiction fantasy author, Dee Fish. Welcome to the show. Hello. <laughs> so your first book is out. How exciting yes. is that? It is super exciting. I'm, I've self-published a lot of comic books, um, and I've published, I've been published, um, but this this hit different. Like I've got tons of comics that I've published and printed, and I've sold and pushed. This did. This hit very, very different. Being my first novel. And the book is called Lycanthropy and the Single Girl. And, and I have a log line for you. Oh, boy, do I. It's, <laughs> it's, it's Sex in the City meets the San Andreas Shifters. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the latter being G.L. Carriker's very sexy um, gay werewolf uh, uh, series. But, you know, this is plenty sexy, but this is... This is a, you know, 20-something cishet girl just trying to make a living and cope with friends and job and, you know, dating drama and a whole lot of hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the scenes where she's like, like trying to quickly clean up her house after a change, you know, after a, a, a shapeshift. And she's shaking hair off the balcony and the landlord's going, where's all this dog hair coming from? <laughs> this is like having a long haired, you know, large long haired dog who's blowing coat for the summer. Uh -huh. Oh, God, I've done this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it's it's an interesting twist on the uh, on the whole werewolf trope. Thank you. Um, it was one of the twist of dealing with the hair is one of the first ideas that actually spurred the entire book on. Um, <clears throat> I, I first had the core, I mean, I've loved werewolf stories my entire life. I first had the core idea. Um, okay. A bit of um, background for um, listeners is um, I'm as I do a webcomic as well called Finding D, which is um, I've been doing for seven years now, and it's kind of a humorous chronicling of my coming out in my 40s as transgender. And that part of the experience is where about um, seven or eight years ago, give or take, um, I started going down that path. Um, 
specifically the path of dealing with unwanted hair. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and that's what started giving me the, that's what started putting thoughts into my head where it started coalescing things that were just pet peeves in movies. For years, <laughs> I had, I have, and, you know, it, it, I put this in the book, but um, one of the things, one of my biggest pet peeves in werewolf stories is I remember uh, so many movies where you have these characters especially when it's the female characters that turn into werewolves and they have salon haircuts and then they turn into, and then they turn into giant monster dogs and turn back. And not only are their bangs still intact, but their, their, their highlights, their salon cut, their waves, everything. And I'm like, uh, 20 minutes ago, you were a 12 foot tall dog. (laughs) Yeah. And that hair, that hair went away. Um, wh- where did the hair come? Where did the haircut come from? And that kind of led me down the path of where does all the hair go? Um, you don't really see, aside from the, the the werewolf stories where they're literally tearing their skin off, which mm-hmm. is not what I wanted to do with it. Um, that's like the only narrative that I can think of in popular culture where they really openly address where the hair goes, what happens to that kind of stuff. Now, admittedly, when I started writing this, I did not know. I had no clue there was such an under, there was such a um, explosion of like shifter erotica and all that stuff that's out there. Oh my God. I learned about that. I learned about that about halfway into the third book in this series that I've, that I've written. Um, and I'm like, Oh, okay. Leave it to me to feel like I've stumbled onto some cool thing that no one else is doing, only to find out everyone else is doing it. So some of this material may have been covered by other authors, but since discovering it, I have actively gone out of my way to avoid most of it. So I don't unintentionally rip anything off. That's very ethical. Yeah, it's it's also important as an artist. You have to know that your ideas are your own and just not, you know patched together from what everybody else is doing you know the, all the greats yeah. get accused of it at some point or another right <laughs> so. oh and i and i will as well and there'll be things that i'll have to i'll have to say up oh, yep that probably was in my subconscious um that was in there in the background somewhere rattling around but nothing in the book is anything i've ever intentionally said i'm i'm ripping this off like of i've had people send me joke memes and i'm like well can't make that joke now uh, <laughs> yeah that's yeah <laughs> Werewolf, their wolf, their castle. Yeah, oh, that on. sort of thing. Exactly. Come on. Yep. <laughs> you know, we've all seen that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Frankenstein. Young yeah. Frankenstein. Yeah, there's a there's a first <laughs> date movie. <laughs> <laughs> so this this book, uh, uh, Lycanthropy and the Single Girl, is you start reading a book, especially from a new author, and you go, okay. Uh, let's let's see what new author tropes are in here, and the first one is, oh, well they've started their they've started their book three chapters too early. <laughs> yeah, the getting <laughs> and, up in the morning scene. No. And, and then and then you realize as the more you read, you realize, oh no, this isn't that kind of book at all. This is all about character sketches, one one sort of building into the next. This isn't a. a, a uh, a hero's journey. This we're not, you know. We're this not, is just her, you know, chronicling her life as it as it happens. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's very much. It's all about this kind of. This book is all about the character arcs. It's not about uh, 
uh, the hero goes out into the brave world and the redemption arc and the the uh, uh, and all of that. That's not that's not what drives this book at all. It's it's meant to be. It's no more than what it is. It's it's a, a fun romance novel with lycanthropy thrown in. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that was a trope I was very aware of the the waking up in the morning trope. Um, and I know I I know that sooner or later, you know, I will definitely get some criticism for it. But in my heart, that was where that was where I kind of needed to start the story. Um. Well, and you you read and you start you go oh waking up in the morning no this is not where the story began the story her. began the previous night it did yeah yes. so you're already well into the actual plot when on page one so you're good to go I do also like I like I like I didn't want to tell the story linearly if that makes sense like uh-huh. I didn't want to start from you know how she meets the person that makes her a werewolf, how she becomes a werewolf and goes through that process. So there's, you know, there's a lot of flashback structuring mm-hmm. um, in there, but I really did want to hit it. That op- the last line of the first paragraph was kind of the impetus for getting started on it, which is the concept of you're getting you're rushing to get out the door to get to work first thing in the morning and you have to deal with all this various drama and stress but the various drama and stress in her case is dealing with the aftermath of the werewolf transformation and while they're and having it be more of a rolling your eyes oh what the heck moment mm-hmm. yeah rather than rather than going in for the pure the more expected pure horror i i do like while it's funny, I'm not a huge fan of deconstruction as a general rule in in stories, but I really loved kind of taking all the tropes of werewolf stories, of vampire stories, and these kinds of things, taking those tropes, re-examining every one of them, and saying, oh, so many of these come from movies. You know, there's so many of these things that we take for granted as you know, cast in stone. Um, And so many of them, you can literally point to, well, technically they were cast in stone in 1951 Mm -hmm. or 19... uh, Yeah. If something's been cast in stone because the Universal made the Wolfman... Yeah. (laughs) That's... Yeah. Um, And, you know, I don't consider it much of a spoiler, but, you know, I deal with you know, vampires as well, and the whole issue of sunlight, and making a point that that was literally a trope created to get around legal legal issues when they were making Nosferatu. <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah, it absolutely was. Really, I what I I have no I have no context for this. What what were the legal so, issues? Um, oh, the after running up against tra- copyright issues with um, uh, Dracula. Oh. Yeah, Nosferatu's just Dracula. Um, they changed the names and told the exact same story, um, hoping basically, I think at one point they were trying to get the rights, and then when they failed to get the rights, they were in so deep, they just kept making the movie, and they changed the ending of the book, Dracula, um, mm-hmm. to have their, their vampire, Count Orlock, die in the, dawn, in the morning sun. Oh. And that, that created... Now, there are some mythological... Um, details that you know earlier different versions of vampires where they were more like tangible ghosts 
and the sunlight was more of a their body is still in the ground and they you know they'll just discorporate in the daylight there's earlier folktale versions i've done a lot mm -hmm. of um i've had to do a lot of research as well to try to make sure that when i'm calling from certain tropes i at least know what i'm talking about a little bit i'm not trying to go for expert status but yeah the um the 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 Nosferatu thing actually is something that kind of burned in my head back when a lot of the open criticism um, when Twilight was exploding, mm -hmm. which I've never read the books. I've only seen the first movie. I really don't have I, 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 I neither hate nor love it. Um, but all the jokes about vampires don't sparkle in the sun. They burn. And I'm like, yeah, since 1931. Yeah, well, that was invented. That was invented for a movie. Yeah, and well, and that, that whole burning in the sunlight trope, you know, evil burns in the sunlight. Uh, I was working on mm -hmm. a, oh, God, it was a horrible movie. Uh, Ruth Buzzy was a co-producer of it. Uh, it was called The Being, and The Being was this giant caterpillar thing that, that uh, attacked everybody <laughs> and burned in the sunlight. And I know, because I was the poor schlub who had to do the AB smoke to make <laughs> ah. the thing burn in the sunlight. <laughs> And uh, I was I was in a box underneath the worm suit with my hands in the worm suit, animating the worm suit by hand. And uh, they were spraying the A.B. smoke and they were really zealous with it. And the damned A.B. smoke got in my eyes and I was blind for 30 minutes. And wow. uh, I thought that was it, man. I, I was I was a my, my career was over. My life was over. I was blinded. But and, you, uh, I bet you just hung in there and, you know, muppeted along with the... Well, I, I did, you know, <laughs> I did I did the shot and they got their shot, but afterwards I could not see for half an hour, you know, and I, I've, well, and the other, the other thing was, uh, you know, the, the title, uh, Nosferatu, uh, I've got an alternate description for that film. Oh, you're not going to go there. <laughs> yes. A young, a young village boy is given... A life-changing operation to fix his facial disfigurement in a nose for Atu. <laughs> Why do I let you out of your bindings in the morning? <laughs> I need <Yeah>. more rope. <laughs> I have I have maybe way too much time to think about these things. <laughs> So did you live any of this? I mean, not the lycanthropy, but, you know, the the life, the loves, the the friends, Are any the of, job. Any of the people. Is that any, anything from life or your friends? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm a graphic designer. I used to live in Tampa, um, much like Claire in the in the book, the, the protagonist. Um, you know, I, I designed a protagonist that has cur cur curly brown hair and is about six feet tall. I am surprisingly six two and have curly ha hair that is now graying. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, I mean, there is definitely a lot of audio. Um, I'm, I'm an artist. I illustrate. I do paintings from time to time, just like the character. So I, I'm definitely there's definitely no denying that the character has author insert written all over her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and and I, I have no problem with that. I just feel like it's like. Yeah, but I'm not Mary su suing her because she's kind of terrible at a lot of things. Mm. Well, six, <laughs> six feet tall is tall for a woman. I have met taller women <laughs> uh, yes. working working in the motion picture industry. You, there are some tall women out and not, there. Not just the supermodels. You get some burly grips who are 
you know. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> some of the, that way. some of the CG artists at Rhythm and Hue Studios, there was there was one woman who was six foot five, mm. and, uh, just, and they didn't make her play basketball. No, God no, bless no. Them. <laughs> she she was a brilliant artist too. Yeah, it's just brilliant. But six foot five, it's it's you know, it's, it's uh, she walks into a room and she takes command right right away because of the height. And I, there's actually, there's a character in one of the other books who's about that height and has that same attitude when she walks into a room with Claire. I wanted her to be the six foot tall woman who does not do that at the beginning. You know, sometimes you, you, know, you, have, you are in touch with your inner petite. <laughs> I've got, I've got a gal being, pal like that. She kind of likes being invisible um, in that regard. She, um, the, a lot of the, the, the core characters, um, which is... Um, Claire Gribbled, who's the protagonist and the titular werewolf. Um, her best friend, the, her best human friend is Chandra McKay, who is loosely based on a friend of mine from Atlanta, um, who I just was this, she's this bubbly ray of like incredible optimistic sunshine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I kind of combined that with a little bit of my own um like Chandra represents more of my pop culture interests aside from the gaming stuff. I'm not a gamer, so I have to get assistance writing the gaming references that she makes. But the you know, the, the movie obsession, the fact that she's the one who was literally telling the vampire about the Nosferatu thing, <laughs> um, that comes. That's me. That's um, that's me. Certain little tidbits from her personality do come from my friend in Atlanta. Um, and then there's Marishka. Um, who's the 116-year-old vampire ramen chef. Um, so she's a fairly she's new... Had, I'm, she's had a lot of jobs. <laughs> I bet. You know, because uh, she can't she can't stay very long at any of them because they notice that she doesn't age. Yep. And she has and that's to... That's why she's... Yeah. Yeah, she, she's... Um, as, she, as it's pointed out in the book, she sings, she does karaoke, but that she has... She has dabbled in the music industry a lot, and that becomes a huge part of her character moving forward in the series. Uh-huh. And sh- she's actually kind of loosely based on my wife Heidi. Ooh, a lot of a lot of Heidi's personality, um, the extreme extrovertedness that Marishka has um, comes from Heidi. The musical aspirations come from Heidi. Like kind of the the, the punk culture, like a p- little bit of punk, a little bit of goth, and I, I know that's up. I had a friend of mine who was like, isn't isn't her being a goth vampire just a little bit on the nose? And I'm just kind of like, yeah, but it's a wonderful cover if you, you know, you know you're never going to get any less pale. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And you already like, if you already like punk music and wearing black because of the, the punk music scene, it's not that hard of a slide to just pretend to be a little bit more goth. <laughs> you know, if the, if the fangs come out in the club, everyone's just going to go, oh, cool. <laughs> who's yeah, your, basically, who's your dentist? it's... It's it's a hiding in plain sight kind of thing if you you know and I, I lead into that joke a little bit in the middle of the book um, when Chandra Chandra and her kind of have their come together conversations where Chandra is just like pointing to the totality of her being like it's not subtle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All the all the songs of her youth are all coming into public domain now. <laughs> There's got to be somewhere be- to go with that, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I really haven't taken much advantage of that. Um, I, re- I had to go through the book meticulously when I discovered in the editorial process, 
I wrote it on the, I wrote it really, I did not do any, like, I didn't do any publishing research when I started writing. Um, it was, mm-hmm. uh, um, it was November, pan- first year of the pandemic, the first lockdown, I just started writing like a crazy person. And then when I was done with, I, it, took, it took me about two and a half, three months to finish the first draft. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that is uh, fast. The pand- the, I'm six books in on this series writing wise. The pandemic got a lot of work out of me. Wow. <laughs> I'm impressed. Um, yeah, and each book is twice the length of the first. So I got, I went crazy um, and no, no regrets. I'm still on the sixth book right now. Um, but in, I completely lost my train of thought there. Um, you, you did <laughs> oh, no publishing the, the research. Songs. I did not realize until I start until I had gotten well into it that you can't use song lyrics in novels. Oh, you got me right, strikes. Woo! I didn't uh, know you, that. You need you need permission. Oh, which that's, is, I guess that makes sense. Yep. That makes Music sense. So all, all the karaoke, all the ca- the, the karaoke scenes in the novel had to be edited so that you never actually hear what they're saying. Um, the only character in any of the books that you actually get to hear what they're singing is actually going to be in Chandra at one point, is going to sing a public domain song at Carrie. Okay. There we are. Okay, good. But yeah, I, I you know, th- there was that, you know, she, I can, you can reference the song titles. Like I reference, you know, Werewolf of London and Hungry Like the Wolf. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, about, about a year ago for karaoke, I dressed up as a werewolf and just sang nothing but werewolf songs. So. <gasps> I want a copy of your playlist. <laughs> I want to I want to append append this to the append those songs to the end of this interview. I think it was um Hungry Like the Wolf, Werewolf of London and um Bark at the Moon. I can definitely mm. off the top of my head remember, but I can't remember if I did any other ones. Yeah, we might be able to play them on the radio after, but we can't incorporate them in the, I know. the podcast itself. I know. I'll okay. just I'll, we, All right. Just, okay, let I'm going my little dreams. As in as much as they they conform to to American um, licensing standards, which are a hot <laughs> mess. <laughs> I'm just kind of in awe uh, of your characterizations. I mean this this novel is obviously yeah. this book is it's some novels are plot driven and some novels are character driven, and this is all like ninety percent character driven. And uh, uh, so reading through this was kind of a new thing for me. I don't usually like those novels, but yours was fun. Thank you. Well, here it is high summer, so we're just in time for the best werewolf summer read you'll ever have. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> when can we expect to see the rest? Um, the editorial on the second book is going well. I'm going to try to get them out with, you know, at least every six months a new book i don't want to i don't want it to be to where it's every couple of months new new book um because even i'm not comfortable writing that quickly well and you'll overdrive your you'll uh, you'll overrun your own uh, your publicity yeah you yeah you yeah. overrun your I, I own publicity wanna, doing that people will get confused i don't i don't want to be i don't want to be public i don't want to be promoting something perpetually all the time either <laughs> Because you know you, you do when you're sitting there doing promotion, you don't have a lot of time to be like, okay, now time to dip back into book six. Crap, where was I? Oh, talking about book two. Yikes! So I need a little bit of time to get finished on book six. Um, 
and, you know, they, they do get a lot more plot driven as the stories go, because, mm-hmm. you know, the further the further you go, the more you get into the lore and all that stuff. But I always I do always try to make sure that no matter how complicated they get and how many uh, my my um, I have a Google Drive document that's like my character notes and details and it's about 30 pages long right now. Yep. Just to keep track of everything. That makes sense. Um, you know, there's all kinds of weird things that I've had to research in doing this, um, partly because of um, the antagonist, her ex-boyfriend, Liam, who, when I, I designed him, I was loosely basing him on um, really young Gary Oldman performances. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Like a little Sid and Nancy and... Some of the really early charming Gary Oldman stuff where he was always charming, but always really creepy at the same time. Yeah, that definitely came across with Liam. He was. And I, I, I think my, my greatest compliment is when my editor, uh, Lori, came back to me and was, um, uh, uh, I'll, I'll edit it, but, you know. Bleep that bleeping Liam. Why does he have to be so bleeping sexy? I hate him. <laughs> <laughs> well, there has and to be I, an attraction, I, you know. Yeah, that's kind like, of that's kind of that's what I was going for. Yeah, exactly. For, he is he is reprehensible in so many ways, but I really needed to make sure it was clear why that it wasn't unbelievable that Claire would get pulled into his allure from the first time they meet um, crap, guy in a crappy band, you know, who actually successfully seduces her. And while we, you know, as the book unfolds, we discover there are way more reasons just than his natural charm. Mm-hmm. That he's able to do that. But um, there's also the I, I wanted to make sure that from 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 line one, the audience might be able to go, OK, I'm I'm seeing even though I don't God, I don't think we even introduced Liam until almost like 13 or 14 chapters in. Give or yeah, take. yeah, I'd say about 40 um, percent uh, of the way into the book. It's actually bit of bit of trivia for whatever reason that's standard in a lot of in, in almost every book I've done the main antagonist doesn't show up until almost halfway through. It's an old Stan Lee advice from you know the golden age of Marvel. Every comic is someone's first. So each with each novel, I try to write it like okay, I need to assume no one has read the other book. Um, if they're picking this up, I need to make sure that everything is explainable and understandable. Um, I, I mean, I kind of write each chapter that way. Um, with almost the intention of it being something that would be, you know, running a chapter at a time online or something. So I I like reintroducing the characters. I like kind of telling you the basic information you need to know frequently enough for you to, for it to be burned into your memory as you're reading. But also being character driven, um, character and theme driven are more important to me than the plot because mm-hmm. I change the plot as I'm working. Mm-hmm. If the plot's not working, if the plot, if the if the characters very frequently, the characters will suggest all kinds of like, that's not working. You you have to change this. Um, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but there's a character that turns turns into a protagonist by the end. That was not planned. That was just a boy. This chemistry is working. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, that's cool when that happens. So you know, wait, ho- it, hopefully you know. Hopefully you know who I'm talking about. I'm just trying not to spoil everything. No spoilers here. It's it's great when stuff like that works out because it it shows that your characters that you are so vested in your characters that they have come to life for you because you can't do that with a character that that does not speak to you personally. 
Yeah. And as the series has gone on, I have had to go in and do massive re I know it's, it's supposed to be, you're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to rewrite in the middle of writing. You're supposed to do your, but, but I couldn't do it because if the core premise of the plot is not working and the character starts saying, um, D I wouldn't be that stupid or D I would never do that. Then I got to go back and rethink. Mm, I, Oh yeah. I, one of my biggest tropes that I cannot stand in stories is idiot ball storytelling. Um, and I play with the trope here where Claire makes some, some dramatic decisions based on misunderstandings, but I go out of my way to explain there is a reason why she is making foolish decisions by the end of the book. That it's not just the idiot ball. (laughs) <laughs> um like for, like for example did you um have you seen uh the lost world jurassic park the second jurassic park uh no no i've mm-hmm. i saw the f- very first one but i haven't seen any jurassic park movies since then and that, that, I am that either. yeah i suppose we should ah, 19 point. what was it 1985 was the first one uh the first one was 1992 yeah, was 92 okay and the second or 92 or 93 and the second was 97 Ah, I was hoping that that one was ubiquitous enough because that's my best example of an idiot ball moment in which a character they describe as being super smart about being among animals, living among animals, knowing about how upwind and downwind works, walks around for 24 hours wearing a vest covered in baby dinosaur blood and then is shocked at the end of the day that the dinosaur has tracked them down. And oh it wouldn't be so stupid if the two smartest characters didn't even stop in the middle of that walking day to say, is that your blood? No, it's baby T-Rex blood. Oh, I'm fine. The two, the two smartest characters who should have absolutely known this is bad. Yeah, trauma, <laughs> trauma only gets you so far with an explanation. Yeah, and, and, and that's the problem with that was that it was, there, was no, there was no trauma at that point. It was a 24-hour walking where nothing bad happened between day and day mm. or between night and night they, it, 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 the bad stuff happens on one night and then they just walk for an entire day and it's uneventful until the next night which means she had the entire day to figure it out <laughs> while, while while describing how t-rexes have the largest olfactory cavity in the fossil record and can smell things for miles away and you're wearing the baby's blood but that's 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 not even the idiot ball. That's throwing her, that character into the idiot ball pit at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> that's, There's an image. That's a level. That's a, I mean, a lot of stories. Will, and I mean, I'm sure you know the trope. It's idiot you're watching a movie or a TV Cheese. show where a character who three minutes ago was competent has to be really, really stupid to move the plot forward. Yeah, and that's that gets back to something I was about to mention, which is. Uh, you know, people say, oh, well, you don't change the plot on your first draft and you go back and rewrite it. Well, what if you realize that uh, you're about to drive your novel off a cliff and that there's no way to recover it the way you're going? Yeah. You, you know, what are you supposed to do? This is not we're not doing Russian engineering here. No offense to those no. Russian listeners. But the the whole trope about uh, uh, Russian engineering is that. Uh, the people in charge don't want to know the bad news, so they 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 reward being lied to, and the result <laughs> is that the bad stuff gets put in, and there's mm-hmm. no ch- there's nobody there's nobody minding the process to make sure it doesn't go off the rails. 
Well, that because there's like, no incentive to do it. Sounds like corporate uh, engineering anywhere. Well, uh, oh, yeah. in large part, yeah. But the, the... Corporate, corporate graphic design uh-huh. as well. Corporate storytelling. How many times is it? Uh-huh. I've been in meetings as a graphic designer where the client is like has a stupid idea and everyone there is being paid to not tell them that idea is stupid. And then they find out the idea is stupid when they go to market. Okay, I have one word for you, Gene. B. Oh, the Mason, the, X, the Mason X B. <laughs> I was working at uh, Rhythm and Hughes Studios, uh, and this happened, I guess, about 15 years ago now. Uh, Mm -hmm. The studio was responsible for animating the Nason XB, and they had done the whole line of commercials. And the people at Nason X decided that having their mascot be an insect was a little on the creepy side. So they said, let's take the wings off the Nason XB because it's too creepy. (laughs) You know, nobody wants an insect flying in their face. So they paid us like $25,000 or whatever it was. No, $2,500 in those those 15 years ago dollars, which I guess would be about three grand now, uh, to take the... To reanimate the whole flipping thing. Re-render the whole thing with with the wings missing, you know, with the wings off. And so we did it and we showed them the dailies and they said... Well, how is the bee levitating? How how is that <laughs> happening? It makes no sense. So we said you told us to take the freaking wings off. <laughs> so they had to pay another three thousand dollars to have us put the wings back on. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, that sounds about right. You know, it's this kind of stuff all all goes on all the time. But if you're if you're a writer. And uh, you're you're going along, and you end up with one of those situations where your character would have to be just happen to have all of his or her brains leak out their ears at a critical moment in order to move the plot forward. And it's obvious Mm -hmm. to everyone concerned, you've done it wrong and it needs to be fixed. And you might as well stop and fix it now because it's going to be easier actually in the long run to fix it and make it better now rather than do it over after you've written another 60,000 words. Exactly. So I and I I've, I've had to do that about five or six times now in these books and just stop, go completely. I've I've had to rewrite things. I'll I take the chapters and I put them in a full box and I see if I can use material from it later. Um, mm-hmm. I've got I've got some chapters that I wrote with a side character taking an airplane flight in book four that's probably going to show up in book seven because mm. I know where I I know where I can use this. Great, great sequence of scenes didn't fit in the book it was written for. Yep. And I've great. had to do that a bunch. But never throw anything out. Oh, yeah. There's a line from the end. There's a scene at the end of this book where Mariska describes why she doesn't or how she gets away with not really paying for anything. That was written for book five. And I realized all these characters would know this by book five. I should put this in book one before I go to print. <laughs> well, now I'm now I'm like in the mood for ramen, and I I blame Mariska for this. Or Mariska, I'm Mariska. terrible. Mariska. I character, and I mis I mispronounce her name constantly because I only ever see it in print. Right, um, right. But right. yeah, there's there's so many things um, that you can't expect. The books just tell you what they're going to do. Like with with Liam, I needed him to be sexy, and I wanted to ramp it up. So I'm like, well, what's the sexiest accent I could think? Scottish. Uh-huh. Uh, it's just me. That's uh-huh. me. 
That's why that is the one hundred percent reason why Liam is Scottish is because, because I thought that, that would be sexy. No, I needed to ramp up his sexiness. What? But now you... half these books, the new ones I'm writing, half of them take place in Scotland because I got stuck. I'm like, oh crap! One of my key <laughs> characters comes from Scotland, and he's got a. I introduce. I I mention his family a lot near the end. Well, that family's got to show up eventually. Oh crap! I fell in love with writing these characters. Guess the books are in Scotland now. Have you ever been to Scotland? No crap! The internet exists. Research time. <laughs> well, you know, it's 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 the 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 Chekhov's gun theory. If 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 someone fires a phaser in Act One, you if, or if, or if, if there's if, a phaser, if there's in, a phaser act, in Act One, it must be it, it must be fired by Act Three. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's Pavel Chekhov's gun. Right, yep. right. <laughs> Uh, oh, you made a Star Trek reference. Star I have Trek to throw reference. this in. Um, these books actually kind of had their origin in Star Trek fan fiction I was writing a few years ago. Okay. That's an interesting touchstone. Tell us about I that. was um, writing with a friend of mine on a sim where it's kind of like a role playing without the role playing. Mm-hmm. You, ha- you, char- you make a character, you design it, you write that character's part of every story. Mm-hmm. But I got so obsessed with the writing the character, I was writing all kinds of solo stories with her and just inserting them into the sim. Like, here's a new, here's a new story with my character, and she was a, she was a Romulan in Starfleet, a self-loathing Romulan in Starfleet. And the more I wrote her story, and I got obsessed with Diane Duane's novels because I was told we, I, for our sim, I could use that as my continuity Ooh, for the Romulan Empire. That's good because they're um, they're amazing. Yeah. So I, I still know how to curse in Romulan because of the, those books. Cool. Um, but I wrote these huge backstories and working with some of the other writers in there, all these different things. And I'm like, okay, what if I make the Romulans werewolves? And so a lot of the, there's going to be a lot of internal werewolf culture. And all of that was inspired by writing Romulan culture stuff in my Star Trek sim. They were wolves, but now they're Romulans. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing more from this whole uh, this whole novel arc. You've got a bunch of them. You're going to keep going too, as long as the the as long as, as, they long keep as the talking. fans want them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have an end point in mind for where the major end part of the story goes and what the main arc is. Um, what Claire's arc is going to be throughout it, what the other characters' arcs are, um, you know, uh, and the overarching, like, one of the things that I'll, I will give a spoiler, Claire is actually not the main character of the overarching story. She is the entry character. Oh. Wow. Okay. She is the she is the character that introduces us to this world, but at the end of the day, she's not the character that's the most important to the overall story. Wow. Um Okay. Because it becomes, a, it's right now it's a very small world for her. You know, she's, she doesn't really know very many other werewolves. She doesn't know about much of all these things. There is a lot to learn as the books advance. <laughs> as we learn more about this, about the fact that there are these cultures that, you know, I drop references that there are, you know, there are authorities and that there are rules and these rules can be enforced. And there are reasons why Claire hasn't met many other werewolves and, you know, hasn't come across many of them other outside of just why on earth would a werewolf want to live in Florida? Right. Yeah. <laughs> just all that humidity and you should be constantly smelling of wet dog hair. 
Yes, and who wants to have that much fur and that heat at the same time? Uh, There's not enough thunder needles in the world for werewolfing in Florida. (laughs) (laughs) No, so I'm also proud of using werewolf as a verb in the book at least once, so. Any noun can be verbed. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yeah. So where can we find your your web comics? I'm I I hadn't encountered Finding that part. D. Ah, Finding yep, D. Yeah, it's called fi- Finding D. Uh, Finding D.com or Finding D Comic.com, D-E-E. Um I've been running since uh 2017. It's a weekly web comic that is a semi-autobiographical chronicling of basically my life since coming out as um yeah, I'm a 40-something-year-old trans cartoonist coming out and trying to deal with the realities of that, still trying to make it in comics. Um, uh, th- this The next week's strip is going to be about getting my copies of the book. So it's, awesome. it's, a, it's about what happens in, in our lives. Um, you know, obviously dramatized a little, or com- comedy-dized, because the whole theme of it was that when I first came out as trans, I started finding me as a blog, and I was writing all of my experiences down like, oh, and it was it, it was just a parade of negativity. It was this is the worst thing happened. Oh, I feel terrible about this. And I'm one of those people where I can put my drama into fiction like Claire's Claire's being outed from her family has more to do with my being outed from my family than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I write that into that. Um, but just like in the with the books, I with the books I try to deal with like in the novels and just it's more dramatic, but how does Claire deal with these issues? She has, she has her found family now with Chandra and Mariska. And in the second book, a much larger found family that gets brought into it. Um, And there's very much an idealized concept to it where I've many times been like, you know, Oh, well I could make this more, you know, more negative. Or it could be my perfect idealized little world here and not go in that direction and have the family members that are being chosen not turn out to be jerks. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And with Finding D as a comic strip, the reason I made it into a comic strip was that I thought to myself, what if I take these negative experiences that I'm having um, coming out when I did and had the the political climate and all these things that have caused drama for me? What if I find a way to make a punchline every five or six panels? I do it as a comic strip and I find a way to laugh at it. And if cartoon me can find a way to laugh at these situations, then maybe real me can figure out how to laugh at some of these situations. And it's kind of worked. You know, making art out of your therapy is is as ancient as art, I think. <laughs> oh, that's a time-honored so concept. Art. So, so art therapy. Um, I'm so into <laughs> art therapy. And all these books are about me in one way, shape, or form um, and dealing with issues. And it just... That's one of the reasons why I like the books to be so character centric is that that to me is what I hope people will get invested in, that they'll want to come back, not so much for the lore that I'm building, but what's going to happen to Claire next, what's going to happen to Chandra next, what's going to happen to Mariska next and Bev and all the characters that I've introduced moving forward. Um, You know, I've got all these characters that I've, I've got, I've got like, the character list is massive. I can't keep track of them so half the time. 
Um, it's like by this point. it's it's like days of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> it's a soap. there's definitely a soap opera co- component to it, with yeah. no without a doubt. Um, and I don't mind that so long as I don't dip too deep into the melodrama. Um, and I keep it honest, and I keep the themes relevant for each book. So by the by the third book, like the second book, I dip into the multiple plots. Like the first book, you have it's basically one running plot. That breaks in the middle as the characters split up and then get back together. Mm-hmm. By by the third book, I'm still doing that, but more varied plots are starting to happen. By the fourth and fifth books in the series, that is when the plots don't even come back together. So I have to make sure that the themes all still line up. Yeah, because not everything in these characters' lives can constantly come back to things being connected. Because that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, because that's not how people's lives evolve. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, you know, and that makes and sense. And Maris- Mariska's a 116-year-old vampire. She's going to have backstory. Oh, yeah, she sure is. But she's also going to have relationships that are that don't come back together again because she's outlived them. Yeah, yep. yeah, that's true. Yep. So so yep. the plan is to release, what, two books a year? Two of these a year? Or? That, that is my plan, is, you know, I'm maybe... Uh, I, don't, I don't think I'll get the second one out this year. It'll probably be after the holidays mm-hmm. that I'll, that'll, that'll shoot getting the second book out. But that is about 60% edited. Um, I go, I work with uh, an editor, um, uh, Lori, and she is also the publisher that publishes the Finding D comics that mm-hmm. we met over the Finding publishing. And she's like, you know, I, I do, I do editing. Cause I sounds like, I really need to find an editor for my book. And she's like, you know, I do that too. Right. Like, Oh, woo-hoo. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. So yeah, she, I get back a couple of chapters. I get back a couple of chapters a week and move forward. I mean, there's about five or six rounds of editing that went through the first book before I let it out into the wild. And I'm sure that people are going to still come back and say, I found a typo. That's the universe. I don't think there's a book out there that doesn't have a typo. Yeah, I found an example of Y-O-U-R where it should have been Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. Yep. Always. Yeah. In your Always. book or and someone else's? No, in, this, in her book. Oh, come on. Yeah, yeah. I found it. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, no. yeah. yeah. I have, they slipped by. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. Um, again, I, I went through a professional editor. I went, ran through it with Grammarly. I ran through it with all different spell checks. There's always going to be things that somehow magically... Well, a spell checker isn't going to catch that yeah. difference either. So, yeah, yeah every every and every magical character needs a spell checker. So we can find Lycanthropy and the Single Girl, I assume, on Amazon and Goodreads and where else? Um, it's on Amazon right now is the primary place to find it. Uh, it's also on my Patreon. I, mm-hmm. I released it chapter by chapter on my Patreon as kind of a way to get beta reading. <laughs> uh-huh. Um. And, you know, test the waters on certain things. Um, but right now, if you go to havenwolf.com, that's the website for it. Um, and that's where, you know, new updates will be. It's obviously on Facebook. Right now, it's it's just a release on Amazon. And I'm going to be moving from there probably when I get closer and have more. You know, because you're going to go out there and buy um, URL or buy the uh, the ISBN numbers. You can buy them in a chunk. So when I have like right, right. two books and I'm ready to go, then I'll worry about bookstores. And mm-hmm. I'm, I, all the research I've done has told me when it comes to series like this, not to, to not to put too much financial back um, behind it promoting the first book. 
Um, a lot of people will look at that and say, she's never going to do another book. And they don't bother. They don't, it, for, for whatever reason, uh, all my research says, you know, wait till you have at least two or three books that are actually out there before you put money behind promotion and advertising. Because then you can get oh. the binge people. You can get, you can get people that are really ready. Right. Um, but I, because nobody wants to invest yeah. in an author who produces book one of a series and there's never any more books in the well, series. That's been, yeah, yep. but that's been practice in the industry since the 1970s. How many, how many, you know, trilogies were there, you know, <laughs> following on the, uh, the release of Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, every fantasy writer I know. Yep. And I was bold. I put right on the spine of the book, you know, a big old number one. And right underneath it says the Haven Wolf Chronicles book one. I At first I was hesitant to put that there, but I'm like, you know, one of the advantages of self-publishing um, is that it's going to happen. It's going to come out. Yeah. Um, how much money I spent. How much money I spend on the editing will be dependent on how well they sell. <laughs> right. That's like one of the reasons we wanted to start our own radio station, because any project we want to do, we're the ones yep. who decide whether it gets greenlit or not. Not some, yep. you know, third party trying to wring as many dollars as they can out of the distribution, leaving us with nothing. Yeah. yeah. And, and for me, cre creatively, I am a bit of a control freak. And by the time I had gone through about two rounds of edits on the first book, I was getting ready to start book three. Mm. I went through book two and I wrote books one, two and three. I wrote over from November, from November of 2000 of 2020 to, I think, September uh, or August of 2021. I wrote the first three. Oof. Um, I was just on fire and I didn't want to stop. The ideas were just flowing. The characters were just talking to me. I got obsessed, no doubt. Awesome. Other two books, the other two books came together a little bit slowly because by the time you get that deep into the lore, you can't fly by the seat of your pants anymore because you got to keep track of all your pieces and make sure you're not contradicting things. Oh, yeah, yeah. That makes um, sense too. It, slow, it slows down. Things have to start making more sense. You have been listening to episode 262 of Sci-Fi.Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for Saturday, July 15th, 2023. Our guest this evening has been fantasy writer and cartoonist D. Fish, author of Lycanthropy and the Single Girl, the first book in the Haven Wolf Chronicles series. This episode will air again tomorrow, July 16th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and again on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all of the airtimes have passed, you will be able to download this episode as a podcast from iTunes, Pandora, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and from our own website at sci-fi.radio. Sci-Fi.Radio is listener-supported sci-fi geek culture radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. If you enjoy programming like what you just heard, please visit patreon.com slash sci-fi radio and give generously. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was sci-fi illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. The captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. Sci-Fi.Radio's The Event Horizon is copyright 2023 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Sci-Fi.Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.